So have you ever thought about what your last words will be? Maybe, maybe not. Here's some uh, famous last words. Louis XIV, why do you weep? Do you think I was immortal? It's a good one. Um, Civil War general, John Sedgwick, they couldn't hit an elephant at this dis... Um, <laughs> Kit Carson, named, you know, Carson City's named after Kit Carson. I just wish I had time for one more bowl of chili. Uh, Pancho Villa, Pancho Villa, don't let it end like this. Tell him I said something. Um, David, David Brainerd, he's a missionary to the Native Americans, uh, 150 years ago or so, said, I'm going into eternity, and it is sweet to me to think of eternity. The endlessness of it makes it sweet, but oh, what shall I say of the future of the wicked? The thought is too dreadful. Last words, you know, often will tell something about the person or something that is important to the person. Today, we're going to be in John chapter 17. We're going to see some of Jesus' last words. So please open up your Bible to John 17. This is the last prayer that we see Jesus pray. This is the, the lengthiest prayer we ever see Jesus pray. Um, and here we are going to see what's important to Jesus. And so that's the heart of, or, or that's the title of today's message, the heart of of our Lord and King, because here we see Jesus' last words in prayer. What is on his heart as he's about to go to the cross? He had just spent some time with his disciples. He had been with them in the upper room. They had a meal together. He instituted the Lord's Supper. They left. They're on their way to the garden where we know he's going to be betrayed by Judas, one of his best friends, uh, and then he's going to go to the cross. And so here he's with his disciples in transit. He's praying. You know, possibly they're walking. Maybe he's praying as they're walking because it says he lifts his eyes up, but they're on their way to the garden. These are some of his last words with his disciples, but they're a prayer to the Father. And so here's, here's what I want us to get out of this. As we look at the heart of our Lord and King, there's a couple things. One, he's going to say in this passage here that eternal life is that you know Jesus Christ, or if you, that you know the Father and Jesus Christ whom he has sent. The more we get to know Jesus, the better it is for us. Eternal life for us is getting to know him, and we're going to get to know him forever, but we get a, a glimpse at his heart today. It's going to be awesome, and I hope that as you see his heart, you fall deeper in love and adore him better. Amen. Here's the second, amen, yes. <laughs> Here's the second thing I hope we get from this. As we've been talking the last four weeks, the Christian life is not us living for God. If you ever thought, you know, I'm saved and now I have to go work hard for God, that's not the Christian life. The Christian life is Jesus living his life in and through us. And so as we get to know Jesus, we should become more like Jesus. And so as we see his heart here, have this in your mind. If you're a follower, is my heart the same? Because if it's Jesus in you, if you're really abiding, his life will come through. Your heart will look like this. And so this is a very helpful thing to look at Jesus and, and to look at yourself. We're going to start John 17, verse 1. Um, if you're a note taker, there's, there's notes. There's an app. If you're into apps, um, Common Ground Carson, you can look it up. We have uh, our, our wireless internet here. The password is on mission. So if you need the password for the wireless on mission, feel free to use that. Uh, there's a lot of stuff on there. Or just do it old-fashioned way. Grab the Bible. Um, if you don't have one, grab one in front of you. There's boxes around with Bibles. Um, but we're going to cover the entire chapter this morning. John 17, starting in verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these words... 
he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. We're going to see three sections in this prayer. He's going to pray for himself. That's what we just read. Then he's going to pray for his immediate disciples. Then he's going to pray for us, the disciples that are to come. And here we're seeing him begin by praying about himself, praying for himself to the Father. And he begins this way. He says, the hour has come. If you've been with us or you've been reading through the book of John, you'll know that several times, and five in fact, throughout the book of John, Jesus says, my hour has not yet come. His first miracle, when he turned water into wine, his mother came to him and said, hey, they're out of wine. You got to do something about that. He's like, woman? <laughs> it's a respectful term, but woman, what's that have to do with me? My hour's not yet come. The hour that he's referring to all through John, it's, and right now he says, my hour has come. It's the hour of his glorification, mainly speaking of the cross, what he came to do to die on the cross to, as a covering for our sins so that we could be righteous. I mean, it's basically just the gospel there. Creation, we were made in the image of God. We sinned. We were separated from God because of that. The whole Bible is a love story about God entering into humanity to reconcile us back to him. And the culmination of the entire Bible is when Jesus went to the cross and he died for our sins. Hebrews says that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. And without the forgiveness of sins, we can't be united to God, which is what we were made for. And so the hour, the hour had come where Jesus was going to go to the cross. And so that's on his mind. In just, you know, a few minutes from here, he's going to be praying in the garden and, and sweating drops of blood. The stress is so heavy on him. This is his last few minutes, and here he is showing us his heart. And here's the first thing that he prays for. What, what do you see coming up over and over in these first five, five verses? The word Glory. Glory or glorify. The first thing on Jesus' mind is the glory of the Father. Jesus' first priority is the glory of God. He asks that he will be glorified. Now, if you and I were to ask that, hey, God, glorify me, that would be a little bit presumptuous, wouldn't it? You know, we have no glory in and of ourselves. But Jesus, Jesus is not like us. He was fully man, but he's also fully God. And so he asks God to glorify him with the glory that he had before. Remember John 1, 1 said in the beginning, talking about in the beginning, like Genesis, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. The word later, it said the word became flesh and dwelt among us. That's Jesus. Jesus was not created on Christmas day, you know, AD 02 or whatever. <laughs> he wasn't created then. He existed long but fast. In fact, one of the fun things to do is Look through the Old Testament and try and find Christophanies is what they're called. Jesus popping up through the Old Testament because he does. And he's existed forever. Uh, Philippians 2, 6 and 7, I think says this really well. Jesus is asking for his glory. And one of the things that sometimes we have trouble understanding is how can Jesus be man and God? Did he stop being God when he became a man? Was he still God? Philippians 2, 6 and 7 lays it out very clearly. Speaking of Jesus, Paul writes, who, though he was in the form of God, 
form means exact form, exact representation of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. This is what Jesus did with his glory. He emptied himself of his glory. What is glory? Because we're talking about glory over and over here. What is glory? And how could he empty himself of glory? Here's what glory means. Uh, Valuing God for who he is. In biblical terms, glorifying God is valuing him for who he really is. Or here's another definition I like. It said, ascribing weight as you recognize the real substance. So bringing glory to God is recognizing him for the truth of who he is in his full form. Now, read through the Old Testament. Anybody that saw God, were terif- they were terrified. <laughs> they fell on their knees. Moses said, God, I want to see you in your glory. He's like, yeah, no, you don't. You'll drop over dead. Um, and so he hides him in a rock and God passes by and he says, I'll let you see my backside as I walk by basically, but you can't see me in full glory. God's glory in the fullness of who he is, we, we can't gaze on now. Someday we can. Jesus revealed a little bit of his glory one time while he was on earth. He went up to a mountain. He had three of his disciples with him. A cloud came down and he was transformed. It's called the the transfiguration. He was made white. And as the three disciples looking at him, you know, they saw him glowing as if if in his glory. And with him were Moses and Elijah. And they said, oh my goodness, this is great that we're here. They didn't know what to do. They're like, let's make some tents and we'll hang out here. We'll make one for each of you. We'll make three. They say that and then boom, the other two disappear and Jesus is the only one standing there. In his glory going, no, yeah, Moses and Elijah were great, but they're nothing compared to Jesus because Jesus is God incarnate and his glory. And so he set aside that glory. He set aside the recognition of who he really, really was while on earth. Jesus would say, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. But yet they didn't recognize him in that shining glory. But that would happen after he died. He rose from the dead. He was seen in his glory. And then he ascended to heaven where he is now in bodily form. But this is what he's asking for. He's asking for God to be glorified by himself being glorified. Because as Jesus is glorified, the Father's glorified. And that's what Jesus really wants is the glory of the Father. Look on with me. Just so you know, pay attention that that first request of God's glory is going to go through this whole chapter, starting in verse six. Now he says, I have manifested your name to the people whom you have given me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you for I have given them the words that you gave me and they have received them. And I've come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you, sent to, that you sent me. I am praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those who you have given me, for they are yours. And he's going to go on. But he starts praying for those, and he says, I manifested your name to them. So right now he's starting to pray for the, the 11 disciples right around him. That's what he's praying for. I have manifested myself. What he's saying is I took your glory, God, and I showed it to them perfectly. That's what Jesus did. That's why Jesus could say, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. If you want to know what God is like, and everybody wants to know what God is like, look at Jesus. That's why he came. That's one of the main reasons Jesus came is to reveal the Father, to make him known, it says in John chapter 1. And so he did that perfectly. He made the father known to his disciples and the disciples 
responded in the right way. And I think this is really important. How did they respond here to be disciples, to be true believers? They responded with belief. This is verse 8. They have believed that you sent me. Early on in verse 8, it says they have received. He said, I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them. So they received the words. That means doesn't, that doesn't just mean heard. They heard, but they received, meaning they believed, they accepted, they internalized that. They've come to know in truth that I came from you. So what they understood, they understood who Jesus was as the Son of God. They would understand fully soon what he had to do on the cross. Because they believed, they received, they were saved. The Bible says in, in, in John 1, 16, as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God. So it's not just believing things about Jesus. This is one of the things that's gone through the church over the last hundred years or so, that all you have to do is believe certain things about Jesus. The truth is we need to receive Jesus. So we believe the right things about him. He's talking about truth. He's the son of God. Uh, he died on the cross for our sins. He rose again. He ascended into heaven and he's coming back. We believe those things. And then we receive by faith that he's Lord of our lives. The disciples did that. And so he's praying for them. He, you know, he lays out specifically who he's praying for. And now he's going to pray for them. And it's neat to look at what he asks. Now he's not praying for the world, but just for them. Verse 9. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. There it is, glorified again. Do you see that? He's glorified in them through their belief, through their receiving him. Verse 11, and I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I'm coming to you. So here's Jesus' heart. I'm about to leave. I'm going to die. He's going to rise again and appear for a period of 40 days, but then he's gone. And so on his heart are these disciples, his followers. And here's what he asks. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction. That's Judas so that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. So what's his prayer for them? Look at this. Keep them. That's his prayer. Keep them in your name. He says, while I was here, while Jesus was walking with them, he kept them. I mean, just read through the gospels. Uh, the apostles, the disciples, they kind of get a bad rap, and kind of rightly so. They make a lot of mistakes, but Jesus is with them the whole time. He's like a shepherd with them. When they go off track, he brings them back. When they make mistakes, you know, when he gets arrested in a couple hours, Peter's going to pull out a sword and cut somebody's ear off, and he's like, come on, cut that out. Put it away. This isn't what we do. Heals the guy. You know, I mean, he was just taking care of them, but he's about to go. I mean, what if Peter lashes out after he's gone? Who's going to cover for him? And so that's what he's asking, God, I've kept them, but I'm going to be leaving, so please, you keep them. And we know from the last chapter and the chapter before that in John, part of the way the Father's going to do that is through the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit will come and indwell, and so the Father will continue to keep them through the Holy Spirit. So his desire here is that he will keep them, but there's something else that's part of this, that they will keep, that you will keep them, and in verse 11, that they may be one even as we are one. He's asking them to stay united. Jesus, does, 
desires his disciples to continue following him as one united group. That's his prayer, that they will stay the course as one united group. Unity. Here's what this is talking about. Unity. One, common mind, common purpose, common love. He talks a lot in John about love, that they would love one another. And so here's what he's asking. He's asking that they will continue on the mission that Jesus had, loving one another, going in the same direction. The picture I like to, to, that helps me as I look at this, how are we supposed to have unity in the church? Is it uh, conformity? Are we all supposed to look the same, dress the same, act the same? That's not it. It's kind of like you get five guys, you put them in a car, and you go, hey, we're going to Disneyland. From here to, now, they can debate how, to, how best to get to Disneyland, right? You know, no, it's better to go over to Sacramento and take the, no, let's go through the mountains here. And, you know, I, I want to go this way, you know. But they have a common goal, and they're going together. And as they go, as the Bible would describe in love, they defer to one another in that. Well, I'd rather go through Sacramento, but we're going to get there. Let's try this. Whatever it is, but the, the respect and love for one another, not demanding their own way, that's this picture of, of unity going in the same direction. Now, if one of the guys in the car was like, I want to go to Six Flags, you know, it's like, well, now we've got a real problem. We're going to Disneyland. There's one mission that the God has given the church, and so he wants his disciples to continue going together and working out the details, not, not always perfectly agreeing, but in love going in the same direction. And that will show the world we're going to see who the Father is. Because again, we want to see the glory of God. Jesus wants to see God glorified. Part of God's glory is being recognized for who he is genuinely. And now that job has been Jesus's. Now it's going to be the job of the disciples. But yeah, let's be honest. It's still Jesus in and through the disciples. We can't represent God on our own. But this is what God desires. This is what Jesus desires. And here's the result. In verse 13, there's a so that. Verse 13. But now I'm coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that, or so that, they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. The reason all of this, one of the reasons all of this is going to happen is so that the disciples will be full of joy. And you see this. Now, this doesn't mean their life is going to be easy. In fact, they were all killed, all killed for their faith, but yet they had joy. They all suffered poverty and abuse and all these things, but yet you'll see something in the book of Acts when some of the disciples are arrested and they're beaten, and then they, they walk away from being beaten rejoicing. That's this word joy, that they were counted worthy to, to suffer for Christ. When you're going in God's direction, united with others, there is nothing better I got to tell you, there's nothing better than knowing what God has for you, or at least being willing to try and figure out and move in that direction. That's what he's talking about. And so he asks that they will have the fullness of joy. That is Jesus's joy. Jesus desires his followers to experience full joy in him. I, I emphasize that because the Christian life isn't one of just duty and grudgery. You know, our God isn't uh, a boring God. It, it's, it's actually an exciting and joy-filled life. The Westminster Catechism, if you've ever read that, I think said it quite well. It says, the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Oh, somebody else knows it. <laughs> glorify God and enjoy him forever, meaning our end is to reveal God to the world, glorifying him, and enjoy the process. Enjoy him. Look at verse 17 with me. Now, before that, um, Verse 14, I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, 
because they are not of this world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. Here's his prayer here. He's praying for God to, before this, keep them, but now he's praying that he will protect them. Protect them from the evil one, from the devil, because they're sent. Jesus says, as I have been sent by you, now I send them. The same mission Jesus had, the disciples now have. What was that mission? To reveal God to the world. That's what he had stated before. I glorified you while I was on earth because I made you known perfectly. Now they have the same job. Their job is to reveal you. The church, the disciples, people should be able to look at them and go, I see what God is like because I see how they are. And it's the word. They're, they're teaching the word. They're, they're sharing what the Bible says, and God is glorified. But if the disciples are going to do that, the, the enemy's going to come. The devil is very real, and he's going to come. And so he says, protect them in this battle that they're going to endure. So Jesus sends his followers on a mission to the world, the same mission that Jesus had. And it's, one, to reveal Jesus, but it's also then to speak. What did Jesus say his mission was elsewhere? Jesus says, I came to seek and save the lost. So not only do Christians live distinct, not only do they glorify God by showing him to the world, but then they speak, they seek and save those who don't know him yet, who don't recognize, and then they share. And when they do that, as we looked at last week, they will suffer for it. Not everybody is gonna go, hey, great news, I love it. Some will, but many are gonna hate you for it because they don't want to be exposed to their own sin. They want to do what they want to do. They want moral relativism. And so Jesus prays that they will be kept as they go on mission. And part of his prayer, look at verse 17. He says, sanctify them. Sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. Part of this mission, part of this being sent is that his disciples need to be sanctified. The word sanctify means to cleanse or to set aside for a purpose. It was a word used for the utensils in the Old Testament in the temple where they would take these, these things to be used in the temple and they would sanctify them. They would clean them, they would purify them, and then they could be used for a special purpose. In the New Testament, the word sanctify means it's the process by which you and I, I believe, becomes more and more like Jesus, more and more pure. As time goes on, ideally, my heart more and more reflects Jesus' heart. I love what he loves. I hate what he hates. I have less sin in my life. I have more good deeds, more good fruit in my life. That's sanctification. And it's not a process of legalism, learning how to follow rules. It's a process by which we are changed from the inside by the Holy Spirit, becoming like Jesus. That's what Jesus now is asking. Sanctify them purify them. The weaknesses they have, the lack of faith that they have, in fact, in just a little bit, he's going to be arrested. They all scatter. He says, sanctify them, make them strong so when things happen, they don't scatter. They stay together. When they're challenged, they stand up boldly. When sin tempts, they resist. They trust the Spirit. That's what he's asking for, that he will sanctify them because if they're going on mission, they have to look distinct. They have to look like Jesus if they're going to be effective. Have you ever met somebody that, uh, you know, you, you the way they live, it just looks like the world, looks like everybody else. And then you find out they're a believer. It's like, don't tell anybody, please. <laughs> you know, if you're going to act like that, 
Don't tell anybody you believe in Jesus because you're given the wrong picture of who God is. So it's important that his disciples are sanctified, made like Jesus. And it's a process, but he'll do it. And here's the method. Sanctify them in your word. Elsewhere in the Bible, it says, you will wash with the water of the word. This is why at Common Ground, it's all about the Bible. We get the truth here. We teach typically verse by verse because this is what cleanses us. You know, I've had this silly picture of like the Bible as a bar of soap. <laughs> you know, spiritually though, we're, this is how we're cleansed. You know, it, because as we go to it, it says that is, it is uh, living and active. The, the word is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing the division of soul and spirit, of joint and marrow, and judging the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Meaning, as you go to God's word and you let the Holy Spirit reveal things to you, he will. And you'll go, oh, I've got this sin in my life. And then it'll show you how to be right and how to walk right. We need the word. For them, it was the word that came straight from Jesus. Later, they would then write it down. And so all of the Bible, all scripture is inspired. It says in 2 Timothy, all scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness. So we need the word. So this is how he cleanses us. And he's praying that they will be cleansed. They will be purified, sanctified in the word. Now, is this just for them? Look at verse 20. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. This is cool. This actually gives me chills as I was preparing this. What if, what if when Jesus was praying about this, he had you in mind? He might have. What if as he was praying this, he was thinking about Mia? He was thinking about Derek. He was thinking about Common Ground Carson, one of many, many individual churches that would ever exist. What if he was thinking of us? I think he might have been. Because he's, he says, not just for these, but for those who will believe. Because these are going to go on, these 11, they're going to go on mission. And in fact, right after Jesus dies, uh, rises from the dead, there's this thing called Pentecost, where the Holy Spirit comes upon the disciples. They go out, they preach, and thousands are saved in one day. Thousands, that's who he's praying for. Then those thousands go throughout the world, and they start telling. And they believe, and they believe, and they believe. And so Jesus is thinking about all of them and you and me. And now he's going to pray for us. Some of his last words, what, what do you think? If you said, man, what would Jesus' last words be if he was thinking about me? Here they are. This is what he says. Look at verse 21. That they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may be perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. This is, this is what he's praying for us. Three times here he says, I pray that they will be one. It's the same prayer he prayed for the 11 disciples. Unity. Unity in mission, unity in mind, unity in love. Meaning we're going the same direction and we're going together. It is imperative. There is no Christian life apart from community. I mean, there can be, but it's not biblical. It's not the way it's supposed to be. We're supposed to be involved in a community going together. And, and you know what happens when you start rubbing shoulders with other people that are still in their flesh? Things happen. People make mistakes. People hurt one another. 
God, Jesus knows that's what's going to happen. He knows that we still have this flesh. We still have the ability to sin. And it's going to be hard to keep a group together united. So he says, keep them one. And then as more believers come along, keep them one in, in my direction. The important part of all of this is that Jesus is the head. We're going to be talking about the church in uh, August. We're going to have a, a series on the church. It's going to be great. I'm having fun studying it. But one of those pictures we see of the church is that Jesus is the head, and each of us are members of the body. It's one of the most, uh, I think, helpful pictures of the church. But it's united. And so the ear can't say to the hand, I don't need you, or the eye to the toe, I don't need you. I'm more important. It's all part of the body, all led by the head. And so a, a group of believers like us, our job is to go to God and say, what do you want? Holy Spirit revealed to us. And then we're going to go together, all doing the best to do our parts. And you know what? We're going to mess up along the way. But because we love each other, we're going to stay united. We're going to forgive. We're going to restore. When somebody's caught in sin, we're going to pick them up, dust them off, help them. That's, that's unity moving somewhere, going on mission together. And so this is what Jesus prays for our unity in him, just like it is him and the Father, perfect. So Jesus desires unity in his body, the church. By the way, this brings God glory because over and over he says, I ask that they'll be united so that the world will know you sent me. That's why. So that our unity shows the world that the Bible's true. Our love for one another and our commitment to the mission shows the world that there is a God, there's one, that he sent his son, his son died on the cross for our sins, and they can be saved by placing their faith in this Jesus. And he's coming back. I mean, all of this, we have to speak it. You see how easy that was, though? That's the gospel. It's that easy. But we show it by our love for one another. And so they, they hear the message, they see it, and they go, okay, this, this is what God is like. And God is then glorified. Meaning, what is glory? Recognized for who he is. There's a lot of confusion about who God is. There's a lot of opinions about who God is. But God is real. There is one God. And, and he isn't what you want him to be or what I want him to be. He is what he is, and he's exactly what I want him to be because that's what he is. But we want to reveal him for exactly who he is to the world. This, again, it brings God glory. Look at the heart of Jesus. It's about the glory of the Father. Yes, the result is the salvation of people. The result is your and I joy, which is great, but that's not number one. Do you know that your happiness isn't God's main priority? Your happiness is not. His glory is, which brings you the most happiness. Not happiness as the world gives, but true joy. Listen, I put this in my notes. This is the reverse of it. Disunity in the church is a threat to the glory of God. Disunity in the church is a threat to the glory of God. That should be a big deal to us. It's a big deal to Jesus. That should be a big deal to us. Disunity in the church is a threat to his glory. Not to us building a church. Who cares? His glory is what matters. So when I hear about sin in the life of a pastor or, or a, an elder, you know, somebody as an example, it's just heartbreaking because people look at that person and they should be seeing what God is like. But then this sin comes in and God gets a bad name for that. For me, for me, that's a big deterrent to sin. And I hope it is to you too. If I'm going to do this, sin, what if I get caught? What if somebody finds out, what's that going to say about God? What's that going to do to somebody else's faith or potential faith? That's a big deal. Now, he asked for one more thing. 
And I think this is really cool. Look at verse 24. He actually doesn't really ask. He just tells God his desire. So we see his heart. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me, I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. Here's his desire, that we will be with him in glory forever. That's his desire. He wants you and me with him forever and not in some religious way, in genuine awesome fellowship. Here's the picture I have uh, of the, the new heaven and the new earth in the end is us walking with Jesus in the garden like Adam did. That's what he's asking for, but he's going to be glorified. He'll be in his glorified body, and we will, by the way, be in glorified bodies too. It's not a glory of our own. It's his glory because we don't have a righteousness of our own. We have his righteousness, but in the end, we're going to be with Jesus in our new bodies. It's going to be sweet. We're going to eat. We're going to drink. I think we're going to swim. Who knows? But, but we're going to be with him. That's the big thing. We don't know exactly. And here's the big debate on the end. When does he come back? All this. We can debate that till we're blue in the face. Who cares? He's coming back. And when he does, we will be with him. And that's his desire. He wants you. You know, I think Paul said this recently, and I, I really like it. God doesn't just love you. He likes you. God doesn't just love us. He likes us. Jesus can't wait till the day when you and I individually and us corporately are with him. And I can't wait for that either. In Revelation, the end, very end of the Bible, John is writing and he says, come, Lord Jesus, come. His heart is just crying out, let's be done with this. Jesus, come, let's just be together. That's what Jesus desires too. Beautiful. So what, what do we get as we, as we look at all this? We see Jesus desires that we will be eternally present with him in glory, and we will, by the way. If we respond the way dis the disciples responded, if we hear his word, believe it, receive it, accept it, then we're part of the church. We're part of his body. We're part of his family, and it's beautiful. So here's what we get to know about our God, about Jesus. He cares most about the glory of the Father. We should too. He cares about his followers. He cares about their unity because that brings glory to God. He cares about our joy, not our happiness, our joy. And a lot of times we learn joy through trials, don't we? <laughs> so in his love for us, he's going to let us go through trials and go with us so that our joy will be made full in him because it's his joy. He desires us to go on mission, united, to make God known to the world, to seek and save the lost, and he desires us to be with him. I hope, I hope your heart beats a little bit harder for Jesus as we see his heart, how pure, how authentic, how genuine he is. Let me pray, and then we're gonna, we're gonna take the Lord's Supper, and we're gonna worship together. Lord Jesus Christ, I love you. I love you because you first loved me. I love you because as we see your heart, your heart is so pure, so pure, so right your desire for the Father's glory and your glory united, your love for us, your desire for our joy. I'm so humbled that you care 
that you care about us, that you went to the extent of dying on the cross for our sins so that we could be united to you and united to each other, which brings you glory. Holy Spirit, do in us what you want, whatever that is. Do in us what you want. But I, I ask this one thing, that we would adore you more that we would enjoy you more and that we would worship you authentically, that we would bring you glory because we sing and we speak and we think the truth about you and we reveal to others who you are. But part of it too, you know, in this singing, the Bible says to sing a new song to the Lord. We sing the truth about who you are. That, that praise brings you glory. I thank you that we get to do that. And I pray that you would be glorified as we worship and as we take the Lord's Supper, that you would be glorified. Amen.